Philippians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 3 of chapter 2. And if uh, you don't have a Bible, you can follow the text there in the order of worship. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 3. And again, we're studying through this letter of the Apostle Paul for the rest of the summer. Did you know that the New Testament actually says that there is a kind of hate that needs to have a place in your life? The New Testament commends a certain kind of hate as a part of our lives. And uh, it actually says this in more than one place, but one place in Romans it says that we are to hate or abhor what is evil and then hold fast to what is good. But in a sense, what it's saying is this, is that what we want for people is that they hate what God hates and they love what God loves. You know, to be godly is to be like God. Love what He loves, hate what He hates. What does God hate? Now, that's the question. And your, your, your default mode is going to be different depending on your disposition or your preferences. Uh, if, if you are more of a conservative person and you're faced with the question of what does God hate, you're probably going to go to some of the, you know, kind of culture war hot potatoes. And you might go to something like sexual immorality or, or uh, violence or something like that. God hates that. And the scriptures do speak to that. If you're of a more liberal bent, you might think more in terms of uh, social injustices. God hates that. Oppression. God ha- And Scripture speaks to that too. But the irony is that whether you know, you're bent more to the left or to the right, at the very moment that you think that you are standing up for truth and you're hating the bad things in this world, you can succumb to something that God is adamant about hating that he himself hates. And what is it? Uh, There's a place in the book of Proverbs. This is really a frightening passage. Uh, I won't lie to you. It's where God says, there are six things that I hate. There's seven things that my soul detests. And he generates a list, but the very first thing he lists, the very first one is haughty eyes. You know, you're kind of bracing yourself for violence or, you know, violence against children or just rampant sexual immorality. And the first thing he says is, I just hate it when you look at someone else like you are better. He says, my soul hates that. Now, in this passage, I want you to keep in mind that this is not a letter where you've got this apostle named Paul and he's just kind of reeling off thoughts for life, kind of like a little daily, you know, calendar, and this is the, you know, today's entry. But in a very specific way, he's saying, I'm concerned about you as a local church. This is written to the Philippian local church. And his concern is about pride. And here's the beautiful thing. He diagnoses the problem, but he doesn't just say, now, tighten up. But he shows us how the remedy is what? It's, it's what is always the remedy. It's the gospel. The remedy for inside of us is something outside of us. Look with me in Philippians chapter 2 and beginning in verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, our Father, you know that even as we have just heard and said and sung what we have, we might this moment be proud of ourselves for being here. We might be proud that we're actually paying attention in a prayer and proud that our minds are not wandering. And so, Father, how we of all people need this. Would you show us both the diagnosis and heal us? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. But even though I resisted this on the front end, uh, my wife and I have been van owners for several years now. And, uh, you know, on the front end, I thought, probably what a lot of dads think, that, nah, we'll go another route, we'll find some other spacious vehicle. Nope, nothing's as good as a van. Lost. And, um, and of course, you know, there's a whole culture of complaining about that. There's swagger wagon videos and all that kind of stuff. But um, I will say I've had, I know at least two, it may be three, but I've had two moments of glory that involved being a van owner. And I never would have known this could happen. And they're rare because just, I mean, the planets have to align perfectly for what I'm about to describe to happen. It involves, first, I have to be driving because Dana would never do this. And uh, ideally, it's when everyone is in the van with me so they can witness this. And I have to come to a stoplight or this won't work. And I have to be the first in line at the stoplight. And then the other part, it has to be more than one lane. So, you know, at least two lanes going the same way. And pulling up in the front on the other side, you need like one of these motorcycle rockets. Preferably two, traveling as a pack. And what happens is that, you know, you're just looking for all the world like, I mean, you know, it's me. L.L. Bean kind of, you know, just husband guy and... uh and I'm in the van, and they may not even notice them over there because it's a van for crying out loud. Who cares? And, and you watch the light, and as soon as it turns green, I stand on the gas pedal. <laughs> now, for about eight seconds, I'm ahead. But the result is always, and it's always going to be the same. The result is that about eight seconds later, you hear... You know, so like I'm going, I'm up to 40 and they're like going 190 now. Why will 
the owners or maybe the renters of these rockets always do that because I, I taunted them, that's why. But, but at a heart level is because t- to be on a rocket and to be dusted by a van makes you feel like a nobody. And you don't ride a motorcycle like that to feel like a nobody. You ride a motorcycle like that. I mean, there's more humble motorcycles, but this is the rocket, you know? You want to feel like a somebody. And to get dusted by a van makes you feel like a nobody. And nobody wants to feel like a nobody. Now, that comes so naturally to us. I mean, we are raised in the grammar of finding significance. We are brought up in that grammar of understanding life. It's so natural that we don't understand how evil it is and how big a deal it is to God. The fact that everybody in this room wants to feel like a somebody, really in every facet of our lives, and nobody wants to feel like a nobody seems like just such a plain, vanilla, non-threatening thing about ourselves. Nothing is more dangerous to our church than our pride. And, And it's the danger of something not so much coming from the outside in, it is from the inside. We brought it in. Now, what are we to do with that? And again... The beautiful thing about what Paul does here is he diagnoses the problem, but he doesn't just scold. He says, the only thing that will change you, the only remedy to this illness that we show up with is the gospel. And it's not just to know about it, but it's really to have a felt experience with it. We could say the only thing that's going to change our nature is to really have a direct experience with Christ's nature. The only thing that's going to change our nature is to have an experience with Christ's nature. And what does that mean? And that's, that's what I want to unpack. Um, something that Paul loves to do is when he's exhorting us about the way life is to be lived, is instead of just saying, do this or do that, he'll make an application, but he'll, he'll retell the gospel story to flesh out the application. For instance, famous passage in Ephesians when he's talking to husbands about how the, what kind of husbands, Christian husbands should be in a marriage. He doesn't just say, hey, you're Christians, you know? Take the high road and be a decent husband. But he says, husbands, love your wives. How? And he retells the gospel in just a little little. Little snippet. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and he gave himself for her. And, and so he's showing us Jesus didn't just come up and generically love us, but he gave for his bride to the point of dying. And why does he do that? So that she'll be without blemish and she'll shine and she'll be radiant. And Paul says, All right, now, husbands, there's the way to do it. And it actually motivates. He retells the gospel story to flesh out the application. All right, we don't know what all was going on in the Philippian church, what the infighting was, what the squabbles were, but we can at least say this, it was a church. It was a church. You know, and as many a preacher has said, 
the complaint comes, the church is full of hypocrites. Yes, we joined, you know, and there's always room for more hypocrites. If you want to sign up for foundations class, you know, there, we can always squeeze one more in. We, br- we bring the problems. Churches have always been that way. They always will be until Christ comes back. And we get a little clue about this in, uh, in the last chapter of Philippians. One of the first verses in chapter 4, it says there are these two women and they're not getting along. Paul says they've got to get along. They're fighting, you know, little petty stuff like we do. But wh- whatever the direct circumstances, whatever the particulars, Paul says, look, this is arrogance. You know, you're doing what you're doing. You're tearing each other up because you envy each other or you're competing with each other in the church. And he retells the gospel about who Jesus is and what he did to make this land. And what does he say? Look in verse 6. He says, first off, and there's, there's some terms here that we need to get. He says that Christ, though he was in the form of God, there's been a lot of ink spilled about what that term, it's used twice here, form. What does it mean? It's not talking about God's essence. God's essence can't change. God cannot stop being God. He can't be a different kind of God. He can't be altered. Form is basically a way of saying how He is observed by others. That if God visibly manifests Himself, how is He observed when He does that? That's His form. Maybe it's a burning bush. Maybe it's something else. That's a form. And Paul says this, Jesus, from all eternity, was in the form of God. Uh, you know, the first week or so of December, we'll have our lessons and carol service. That's three and a half months from now. Yeah, can you believe that? First week of December, lessons and carols, we'll sing um, these Christmas songs. One that we love to sing is an old hymn called, Thou Who Wast Rich beyond all splendor. It's a hymn about Jesus. And it's drawing from the New Testament, and it's saying what? That from all eternity you were rich. You didn't look like a Jewish peasant. You didn't look like a nobody. You were the God that the angels have to cover their faces before. The God of all glory, the second person of the Trinity... And Paul says this, though he had that form, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does that verb grasp mean? And we use that verb sometimes to mean to intellectually grasp something. And you know, the first few centuries of the church, that was the big thing the church was trying to to grasp, was how Jesus is fully God and fully man and the Trinity and all that. They were trying to intellectually grasp that. But that's not how Paul's using the word. He's using it like grasp. Hold on to. What is he saying? Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is Yahweh. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he had the right, in a way that we don't, can't ever have rights... He had the right to forever look like God and be treated like God. And if he had to become a man to secure his people's salvation, if he had to do that to make his bride lovely, then he had the right to show up as the most handsome, royal, 
powerful, sought-after, glorious human that could ever be conceived. He had that right. And he let go of it. He did not consider it something to be grasped. He put it on the shelf and he let go of it. And then what does it say in verse 7? And theologians have really spilled a lot of ink about this little phrase. He made himself nothing. What does that mean? Does that that mean at some level he stopped being God? You know, the golden rule of interpreting the Bible is that the Scripture interprets the Scripture. And a little subset of that is if there's somewhere that's difficult to understand, draw from places that are more clear and bring that light to the thing that's more difficult. We know that it can't be that Jesus ever stopped being God. I mean, think about, think about when he was on the boat with the disciples on the lake and this terrible squall comes and it's terrifying. You know, there is no Coast Guard, there is no radar, there is no GPS. You're just out there in the dark. And uh, they wake Jesus up and he says, Be still. Now, we might think, Man, that would be awesome to see that. I wish I had been on the boat to see that. You know what the response was of the people who were on the boat? Get me out of here. Why? It was terrifying. Because they knew, okay, that's not a trick. That's not like, wow, you knew it was the two of spades. I, you know, I don't see how you possibly knew it was the two of spades. Yeah, you just controlled the cosmos. He's, he's God. And they saw it over. Mount of Transfiguration, why is that so alarming? No man looks like this. This is God. So it can't mean he stopped being God. What does it mean? It means this. Jesus, to, to go from being a, a God to the most glorious man ever would be a huge condescension. But he didn't do that. He didn't just become a man. And you know what? I probably should say, shame on me as a preacher for probably too often saying he just became a man. He didn't just become a man. And this is the key. He became a nobody. He didn't become a Roman. He became a Jew. And he didn't become a Jew who would uh, grow up and be uh, in the clergy, be one day become an earthly high priest. He's not born in Jerusalem. He's in Nazareth. There's a place in the New Testament where somebody says, look, we found the Messiah. Somebody says, where's he from? Nazareth. And the response is almost, you're kidding. Like, what, what good could come from Nazareth? It's just sort of a dud, nothing town. He became a nobody. And to drive this home, Paul says, what's the ultimate becoming a nobody? It's not just to be a man. It's not just to be a Jew. It's not just to be poor. His parents were poor. But it's death. And it's not just death. It is the most awful, shameful, sickening, torture death. It's death on a cross. And as many preachers have said, and I will say too, what would you think of a community of people that wore little golden electric chairs? You would think that that is sick. 
What would you think of a community of people that met once a week in a big room and maybe up on the wall they uh, reconstructed wooden gallows where people are hanged? It would seem sick. But do you understand that our favorite symbol is just that? It is a gross implement of death. Now, why is it so important to get that he became a nobody, a nobody who died a nobody's awful death? Why is that what we need to hear? Why, why is that like the chemo on the cancer of pride? I dare say that for those in this room who profess to be Christians, if I asked you, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Probably where our minds would go would be some biggie sin. Some big mistake. You know, it, our mind would go to that thing I did in college. Or that thing I did in that business deal that no one really knows. Or the thing I did on that business trip when I was alone. Do you know why we need that awful cross? August 15th. 2010. Because this morning, we have already gotten up and come to this place, and I'm so glad that you did, but we have done it with haughty eyes, and we have thought that some people get it, and some people don't, and I get it. And God hates it. He hates it when we do that. And the cross is His hatred falling on a man. And and let's flesh that out. How do we think we're somebodies? And how does it affect a community called a local church? If we were to make a list of anybody who year to date, 2010, has given any money to downtown Presbyterian Church, and if you're visiting and wonder, I have no such list, and I don't believe any such list has been generated where I see it. But let's say we made that list and we divided it in four. So there's a top fourth and a bottom fourth. And let me ask you this. Let's say that you knew that you were in the top fourth. And let's say that you were talking with someone in our church that you know has to be in the bottom fourth and really has no prospects of ever getting much higher. Are you more significant to this church? What do we have that we have not received? Is is giving the standard of importance? Think about this. Think about community groups. Uh, in our community groups, sometimes I'll hear you know, somebody give the feedback, our community group is not very open. Now, sometimes that, the problem is the person saying it. They're doing what a counselor would call you know, projecting. Like, I'm closed, and so I'm going to say, well, the group is closed because I'm closed. But it could be that somebody has really been there and tried, and they're saying, we're not open with each other. Why are we not open with each other? I don't mean like the first or second time we get together, but like maybe the 25th time that we get together. Why will we not be more open about sin? Or even things that we need desperately prayer for, that we need people to shoulder loads with us and carry with us. And typically, the way we frame it is, well, I, you know, I think I'm just more of a private person. 
Do not confuse privacy and pride. When God, who wants the best for us, is saying, confess your sins to one another. Bear one another's burdens. Encourage one another in the Lord. And we are saying, no, no, I don't think that's best for me. That is pride in us. What about children? Are we learning children's names? Are we doing that in a way we would never do with adults in our lives? Is it because they don't matter? Do you have to crest 30 to matter? How about this? Thinking even more corporately. Do we, as a new church, we are a squeaky new church comparatively. We just became officially a church less than two and a half years ago. We were a church plant, a mission church, church startup. Not even two and a half years ago, we became a church. We're very young in downtown Greenville. How do we see ourselves? Do we think that we are all that? And look at other churches and look down on them? And guys, think about the fact that when a church gets to be 50 years old, 100 years old, 150 years old, one reality is you're going to have so many more elderly people in the church, which means they didn't leave, you know, praise the Lord. They require a lot of tangible, felt attention and love because they matter. They are part of the body of Christ, but as they demand more, it becomes really difficult to do this balancing act to be more attentive to them, to care for them, to value them, uh, to, to keep them in the life of the church, and to turn our eyes outward and keep looking at Greenville, keep looking at downtown, to do both of those things well. And that is a challenge that 100-year-old churches have to deal with all the time and are trying to think through. We really haven't had to think through that yet. In the midst of that, are we looking at ourselves, our new congregation, and our new building, and going, man, people could really learn from us. That is so harmful. And it comes so naturally. Where do those toxins get dealt with? It is when we, individually, and together, look at the cross... And if it sounds like I'm just saying, look at it, meditate on it, read about it, get it in your bones, that is exactly what we're saying. To chew on it and ingest it and to go to the foot of the cross and in a sense to say, why is there blood running down your arm instead of my arm? Why are you screaming, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I'm not screaming it. You know why? It's because... I am pride, and you are love. And it is the nature of pride to turn in. And it is the nature of love to look out and give. It is the nature of God. God is love. Charles Spurgeon said, His glory... Jesus' glory, is that He set aside His glory. His glory is that He set aside His glory. What if that really got in our hearts? What would it look like? I mean, here's a few things. We would be better apologizers. 
not the fake apologies that we do. I'm sorry you feel that way. I mean, you might as well make an obscene gesture at that point. I'm sorry that you feel that way, you know, which is just another way of saying, you don't get it and you're wrong, rather than, I am sorry. I'm sorry. I had to write an apology letter this week. I would rather cut my hand off with a butter knife. We could apologize because we're free. He's born it. We don't have to do this PR campaign that, yeah, I need Jesus, but I'm still kind of a pretty good person too. I am a sinner saved by grace. And the PR campaign can end. We could, um, we could welcome correction. We could go to a best friend. I'm thinking specifically a Christian going to another Christian friend. We could go to a spouse and say, tell me what no one else is telling me. Um, If you could change one thing about me, what would it be? And getting that objectivity that frightens us and that we all need. Uh, One last thing. We could laugh at ourselves. When someone laughs at me, it is unnerving. Because to be laughed at feels like what? I was just starting to get a foot in the somebody door, and now it's been shut, and I'm out of here in nobody territory again. It is the cross that frees you up to say, if you think there's something funny about me, you've only scratched the surface. If you think there's something funny about me, get in line behind the other people laughing. And to join in. That is completely supernatural. Let me end by saying this. What do you do with this if you're here? Because this is, this is a letter to a Christian church. I'm talking in terms of the gospel and Jesus. What, what do you do with this if you're here and you're not a Christian? Maybe you came with somebody and you're going, I said, it's, I, it's an interesting way you framed it, but I, that's not where I'm coming from. And I would say this to you, drawing from the Old and the New Testament. If you even came and you're even a mildly reflective person, you're a thinking person, then at some level you must want some encounter with the divine. Do you know how to have an encounter with the divine? God God says, God says, I dwell in a high and lofty place, heaven, and also with the person who is lowly and contrite in spirit. Do you want to have an encounter with God? Humble yourself. Humble yourself even enough to say, show me who I really am from what you say, your word. And show me who you really are. That I'm not God, you're God. Last thing, what about for Christians? What if you're hearing all this and saying, I hear you, I think it's biblical, but I may be alive for decades more, and I just don't know if I can face decades more of being a doormat. Because it sounds like that's what you want me to do. Is that it?
How does the text end? Jesus utterly lowers himself. He utterly humbles himself. And then what's the end? Unmarked tomb and forgotten? He's exalted to the highest place. Every tongue and tribe and people and nation worship him and bow to him forever. What is he showing us? The way to exaltation is humiliation. I would not want to stand up and say this if God had not said it. But you know what God has said over and over and over? Do you want exaltation? Do you want to be a somebody? Do you want pleasures forevermore? Do you want ultimate vindication before everybody in the universe? Humble yourself. And then what will happen? Jesus says, humble yourself and you will be exalted. Blessed are the meek. for They'll inherit what? A good bit of nice stuff? The earth. God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, to we who are prideful, to we who want people to see that we are right and we are interesting, we are attractive, we are funny, we should be valued. Lord, have mercy on us. Enable us to lay all at the feet of the cross and be melted by one who was God, who is God, and became a nobody for the real nobodies, that we might be somebody. Put this in our hearts. Put this deep inside of us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.